Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Earlier this week, President Barack Obama spoke to the Cuban people about how U.S. politics have changed since Fidel Castro took over Cuba in 1959. Just stop and consider this fact about the American campaign that's taking place right now. You had two Cuban Americans in the Republican Party running against the legacy of a black man who was president while arguing that they're the best person to beat the Democratic nominee who will either be a woman or a Democratic Socialist. But one candidate left out of the president's summary of this year's election was Donald Trump. And a different label has been used to describe him by many. Here's our Democratic political analyst, Bill Curry, on our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, last week. What the world's talking about is what it regards as the specter of neo-fascism. So I agree with a lot of what Bill says on our program, but I got to say, I cringe when I hear the word fascism get dropped into conversation or into my Facebook feed. I think about the families of European Jews I know who watched their families rounded up and killed. I think of Italians like Princeton professor Gianni Rota, who wrote, I know fascists, Donald Trump is no fascist for The Atlantic. Rota argues that the xenophobia and scare tactics sound familiar, but that Trump falls short of the scourge that Mussolini was to Italy. Rota writes, Trump has no clear plan of any kind. He's not about to dissolve the Democratic Party and banish the Clintons, Obama, Noam Chomsky, Michael Moore, and Jimmy Fallon to exile on Randall's Island. Americans will not goose-step down Broadway. No screaming squadracha of middle-aged Trump fans will occupy Grand Central. Amazon will not be nationalized as a strategic state asset. Trump is simply an opportunist, perfectly willing to change course and say anything. For my part, I think words really do matter. We've held conversations on this show about the uh, term genocide, a word that is still politically very touchy. But it's clear that the emergence of fascism as an idea in an American election is worth exploring. So today, where we live, we'll try to get a better sense of what exactly it means. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Our guest in studio today is Christopher Viles, who's Director of American Studies and Associate Professor of English at the University of Connecticut. He's also the author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, much. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, why don't you just describe and define what fascism means in the way that you understand it? Okay. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think um, I think it's important to realize that fascism. I, I use it in a slightly more loose sense. I mean, in the sense that it it's a, a political stream and a political continuum that need not look exactly like Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany. Um, it's I define it as a kind of and a particular kind of right wing politics, and it's distinguished from conservative pro- conservatism proper. Conservatism proper. I see as um, mostly about kind of, you know, the well-to-do securing their property and and economic influence, um, which doesn't mean you have to be actually, you know, wealthy to be conservative, but it's a different kind of thing than fascism. Again, fascism is a particular kind of right-wing politics, a radical right-wing politics 
that's um, most its kind of core features are militarism and or male violence, kind of a hard rejection of the principle of, of equality. Um, there's an anti-intellectualism that's at its core, a disregard for constitutional democracy, and of course racism. Um, and it's there's a voc- particular vocabulary that animates a fascist politics that it's um, about kind of radical national renewal that exalts kind of strength, power, leadership, violence, nation, race. And um, in terms of economics, uh, you know, fascists tend to be kind of economic pra- pragmatists, taking bits and pieces from kind of the left and right. But it's not economics is not the main thing that kind of animates um, uh, fascism or fascist movements. It really is more about xenophobia, nation, race, these kind of things. And this this idea of pragmatism, this is certainly something that's come up an awful lot uh, in the Donald Trump campaign. Uh, somebody who throughout his career, whether in or out of politics, will say things because that is the thing to say at the time. He mm-hmm. is he is pragmatic in that way. Um, but when you talk about conservatism proper, this is a very interesting thing because. I think it's fair to say that this campaign season has shown the differences, the splits within the Republican Party or the conservative movement. On one wing, there's a there's a kind of libertarianism, a um, in, in essence, a notion that people working by themselves for themselves in their best interest with minimal government interference will make the best decisions. And then on the far other side, it's that um, the notion that we would reorganize government to help make America great again. Is is this part of playing into it, the, the sense that fascism arises when a traditional conservative movement is fractured in this way? Yeah, and but I think what you what you highlighted really um, nicely is how dif- why it's so difficult to see something like fascism in the United States. And I've and I've argued it's never really you know coalesced, and it's 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 never co- like you know obviously taken power or anything like this. But it's more difficult to see in the U.S. than in Europe for reasons you just outlined, which is that. You know, we have a uh, kind of a two-party system here, right, um, where so each of the major parties is this huge umbrella for people in the, either to the left or the, to the right. Um, and it's, it's it kind of more difficult in that system to parse out the various streams. You know, in Europe, when you've got a – in most European countries, when you've got a multi-party system, you know, and I'm just thinking kind of of the German example, and you have various strands of the left and the right can kind of cohere in different parties – um, then you can see kind of, okay, you've got the, you know, the free market liberals and one on the right, you've got the free market liberals, they c- cohere in their party. You have the kind of the, you know, home and hearth conservatives and the CDU. And then you have the NDP, the kind of the real neo-Nazis, and they kind of congeal into one stream and you can kind of see it, right? And so I think that that dynamic has made kind of a neo-fascist movement a little bit easier to see in Europe than the United States where it's still kind of a hodgepodge. And in, and for that reason too, a lot of um, it's it's interesting because what I found when researching my book was this the that the you know nobody agrees on what fascism looks like after 1945. But what's interesting is most all historians of fascism, particularly European fascism, agree that it it does exist after 1945. In fact, one um, hist- Oxford-based historian in the 90s, Roger Griffin, had said that. Um, fascism is a a uh, permanent feature of uh, modern political life, right? So, and interestingly enough, I just while we all disagree about the use of the term, and historians disagree, and scholars disagree, 
there is an agreement that it's still alive, right? You know, that that's I was kind of surprised almost in my research to find that that consensus. We're talking with Christopher Viles, who's a director of American Studies and associate professor of English at UConn, and he's the author of Haunted by Hitler: Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. And we'll be talking more about fascism in the U.S. in a moment. If you want to join us, 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at wnpr.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, after 1945 is what we're going to be talking about an awful lot. But can you just take us before 1945, the rise of fascism I- in Germany, in Italy, and what the fascism of that time was and how it relates to what we're going to be talking about today? Okay, yeah, that's a big question. Um, yeah, so one of the things that's important to keep in mind when thinking about his, what I call historical fascism is that, you know, we've got fascism, as, you know, I just kind of outlined, is really only cohered for sure in two regimes, which was Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy. And there's debate as to whether Franco Spain or Imperial Japan qualifies for that label. Um, but, you know, it's important to realize that um, – and Mussolini comes to power in the March on Rome in 1922. Hitler doesn't come into power until 1933. And so um, we have, you know, and, and Mussolini's regime doesn't co- um, consolidate into a dictatorship immediately. But um, it's often forgotten that, you know, f- some fascism in Italy existed, you know, almost 20 years before World War II, right? And we're talking, you know, dating to the early 1920s. And these, these governments kind of, uh, you know, uh, differ from each other, but what they're animated by, their supporters are not the traditional elites for the most part. Um, the, their support, their base of support comes from the lower middle class. We're talking about kind of small business. We're talking about, you know, small farmers, things like this. Not so much the working class, which are, you know, overwhelmingly in those two countries, either self-identified as kind of socialist or, or communist even. Um, but whereas the demographics of fascism and the regimes are kind of um, pushed from below by this kind of these lower middle class upstarts, eventually what does happen, even though the, uh, you know, the traditional elites, the aristocracy, the, you know, the civil, ser- the people in the civil service, the the rich, the landowners, the capitalists, they don't actually support, f- they're not the, the main drivers of fascism, but they do enable it, you know, consistently. It, and it's often forgotten that, um, you know, there's this narrative of fascism that was instilled in the United States from propaganda during World War II, that fascism comes to power when people kind of willingly surrender their own freedom. And that's not really kind of what happened. Um, in, you know, Germany, you have um, you know, the, the basically fascism is rescued and when the Nazi party as as in 1932 is actually losing in the polls right and it's in it's enabled by Hindenburg and um, men like Kurt von Schleicher and people in the kind of the traditional elite who kind of um, elevate it um, at a moment when it's about to perish and the same thing kind of happens in Italy too it's not like people vote these people in um, so it it's that's one thing I think that's important to remember about this that it's a it's kind of got a a middle class base, a lower middle class base, the rich kind of keep it at arm's length, but ultimately at the end of the day, they enable it, they line up behind it. Um, is it always about race at its core? Is it always about one race being being subservient, another race being above that? That's an excellent question. And why it's an excellent question, I think, is because 
We're so reticent, I think, to label modern political actors as fascist in part because it carries the charge of the Holocaust, right? It carries the charge of, okay, if you call somebody uh, fascist, you're saying that they're automatically, you know, kind of a genocide perpetrator in the making, right? So that's why it's so difficult for us. And I would answer, yes, racism is central to fascism, right? But it's but when you think about the kind of the Mussolini variant and if we want to go there with the Franco variant and certainly with the neo-fascist um, parties in Europe, most kind of, you know, fascisms or neo-fascisms have not resulted in or at least not kind of directly set up death camps. I mean, that's the German fascist example that we're most familiar with. Um, you know, Mussolini, especially by 1938, his PNF was, was a, you know, openly racist. Um, but there is there's not so not, there's it's it's more of a kind of a, a hard racism that Americans might be more familiar with rather than the kind of the eugenic racism of an Adolf Hitler. So when you hear during the course of of a campaign today uh, notions of building a wall to keep certain people out or rounding up people who live here now and sending them away or having a list of people who um, exhibit a certain faith or banning people of that faith from coming here. Um, are those hallmarks of fascist ideology, or are we talking about something else? Um, they can be, yeah, and they, they they are. But I mean, I think what's what's I think your initial caution is important, right? Because most people who look at fascism in kind of detail will say it's it's never about just one trait, right? It's never about um, you know. And I think Jonah Goldberg in his book Liberal Fascism that came out about ten years ago was really guilty of this. Is basically a fascist is you know, anybody who uses the state, right? And so you have that one, you know, trait, and that makes it someone a fascist. But it really is an, a single act or a single policy doesn't does not make a fascist. It's really a whole constellation and a whole cluster of things. I mean, some historians um, call this the fascist minimum, you know, you have to like meet a whole list bulleted list of things before you kind of merit that label. And the question is, how closely I mean, how how much how long down the the list do we have to wait you know before we start kind of thinking really seriously thinking about the label is um is in when i was writing the book tony kushner um the 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 author of angels of america his first play a bright room called day one of his characters um zilla says I mean, how much of a Nazi do you have to be to qualify for the label? Is 25% enough? Is it 50%? Um, I'm say, is, is, as long as somebody's playing in Mr. Hitler's neighborhood, we have no reason to relax. So, and, and that could, but that gets to a very key question about this that you address in your book. It's, it's um, whether it's Nazism, pure Nazism, or fascism of any sort, there's words and deeds. Mm -hmm. And yes. in, in my introduction, the, the caution that I use, that I feel from people who I have talked to— um, whose lives have been affected by the deeds of fascists, believe that that, that is the crossover point, that once, once there is an organization to round people up, to ban people from something, to put people on a, on a list, or to physically harm and kill people, then indeed you cross over. Before that, it's bluster, it's, it's talk, it's attempts at xenophobia that are meant to appeal to some of our basest interests, but don't rise to the level of that of that really big word fascist. Yeah, and I, th I think there's some real truth to that in the sense, and I, and, I, and I agree with that in the sense that fascist can, fascism is not just words, it's deeds, right? And I'm very kind of clear about that in the book. Um, but you also have to kind of wonder if someone is talking fascist words, right, that that's 
a reason to kind of really um, be guarded and, and to and, and again, what 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 point do you do you uh, wait right? At what point do you wait to even start using the la- the label? Um, and you're and I what I make a distinction from with in, at least in the book is that there's a difference between kind of being fascist minded. That's one step. Then having a fascist party, that's another step, and a fascist organization, and then having a fascist state, which is which is pretty rare, right? Um, but in the history of kind of fascism, fascist streams or quasi-fascist streams, neo-fascist streams, even the fascist-minded or even the kind of the fascist organizations, even when they don't take power, can really do a lot of damage, right? And can and really form um, a, a real danger, even short of actually you know, killing people. Well, right? and, and talk about the damage, if you would. I mean, one thing that has been a, a charge certainly leveled at the Trump campaign is this incitement to violence, that, mm-hmm. that by using language over and over again enough, you then get people who will target other people because of how they look or how they act or, or where or what they're wearing or what, where they're sitting in a, in, a, in a hall filled of Trump supporters. And I think that that's something that I know you go into in your book, but is, is part of the conversation right now is incitement to violence is part of what happens around fascist uh, conversation about fascist ideology. It can be, but it, but like I like I'm saying, I mean, political violence isn't the same as fascism. But um, what you get with tr- what we get what you get with Trump um, is that you get this vocabulary of kind of strength, power, race, violence, nation, action, um, and it's kind of st- stunning to me that what you um, don't get it. And if you watch the full speeches of Trump, you know, the full hour-long thing, the campaign things, and not just the clips, what's really stunning, stunning to me is you've got a Republican frontrunner and how f- rarely the guy mentions taxes, right? Or, or you know, words like freedom or liberty or democracy or something like this. So, But I think it's for me, I mean, I'll, I'll just say this, you know, maybe it's the, the spoiler. I don't, I don't think with Trump and the label fascist, I would say he was, I would say he merits the, the label of fascist minded, right? But he doesn't have yet a fascist party, like I was saying. And it's not clear that if we had a Trump president, that he would actually kind of, you know, command a fascist state, right? A lot would have to happen. He would have to really change the state apparatus to make that happen. And it's not really clear um, that that would be the case. But I guess the the fascist mind- mindedness, the, the words, the language, the appeals, the appeals to z- uh, xenophobia, the appeals to kind of, you know, power, strength, race, nation, violence, action, and also the authoritarianism, the, the, the way in which he is very much drawn to Putin. And one, one um, you know, speech I'd seen that he had done in South Carolina, he was even drawn to uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, right, for he's saying – you know, he he. This guy is a man of talent. He takes control of, under difficult circumstances. And he is very clear that you know I'm not a communist. I don't like his politics. But I, I I identify with his personality. I identify with his talent. You can't underestimate a guy like that, right? So it's the it's the authoritarianism. It's what he doesn't say. It's the um, the incitement to racial violence. And those incitements to racial violence, by the way. I mean, I guess what really the moment that really kind of caused me to to take pause was this was, you know, before the, the, you know, the Chicago thing or anything like this, when, you know, some of his 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 supporters are actually beating up brown skinned people and he doesn't condemn it. Right. I mean, and so that's you know what it what it reminded me of is if you go back in the United States in the 1930s, um, Charles Coughlin, the kind of the first it's kind of the first right wing radio guy, but also kind of openly pro-fascist, 
Um, his supporters would go into the New York subways and beat up people who they thought looked Jewish, right? And similarly, he would not condemn them, right? And so, but it's it's not just the incitement to racial violence, but it's also just the whole political matrix, the whole vocabulary um, that it's that it's enmeshed in. That actually, again, I think, yeah, it's it's. We're not we don't he's not fascist to the extent that we don't know what he's going to do. But again, how long do you wait before you start kind of using the label? Uh, and that's the conversation today on where we live. Christopher Viles is the author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. He's the director of American Studies and associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut. When we come back, we'll take some of your calls at 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about the idea of fascism. Christopher Viles has studied this. He's the author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. He's a professor at the University of Connecticut. I'll take some of your phone calls in a moment at 860-275-7266. Can I just ask you about another term that has come up over the course of the last couple of years, the term socialism. So <laughs> the, the word socialist is actually part of Nazism. Mm-hmm. Socialist is used in a lot of different ways um, and quite wrongheadedly, clearly, has has been levied at President Barack Obama over the course of his tenure. I, I'm wondering how you see the word socialist intersect with this word fascist, whether it's in American politics right now or over the years. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the word in, you know, with the Nazi party, the fact that they're national socialist has actually kind of confused a lot of people, I think, in the United States, particularly. Um, And that arises from the fact that in their very early years, um, they did have this kind of economic pragmatism and even a kind of economic populism that at least in some of their economic platforms um, kind of veered left. Um, But overall, I mean, if again, we'd have to define what means or what um, constitutes left and right here, which is another longer conversation. Um, But though that kind of platform, that the kind of the socialist part of national socialism was thrown out the window pretty quickly, you know, to kind of to to appease industrialists, to appeal to appease the landed classes. And particularly with with Hitler, the real kind of turning point was the execution of the the stormtroopers in uh, the Night of the Long Knives um, in the the, um, early 1930s, not too long after he had kind of consolidated his regime. I mean, that that's the point in which most people see the kind of the the socialism dropping out of national socialism. But the that said, the economic or sorry, the the word socialism is. Yeah, that's another show. (laughs) I mean, but but it's that's even more kind of I mean, I I do work on that as well. I mean, that's that that actually has more of a history in the United States, I think, than we realize, too. And a lot of the people who um, identify in the book, identify in the book as anti-fascist were certainly kind of socialist. Right. And there there was the um, in, in uh, it's important to remember in Germany and Italy, you know, some of the pe- first people rounded up were socialist, were communist, things like this. And so even though you have the word kind of national socialism and you have some kind of lefty sounding stuff, even in, um, you know, Mussolini's party, um, really, the those who are ad- out there identified as socialists were were quickly rounded up, at least their leaders, because of this association and this hatred of internationalism. Um, amongst, um, you know, full-blooded fascists. I want to get to the phones here. John is calling from Plymouth. If you want to join us, by the way, 860-275-7266. Hi, John, go ahead. Good morning. Uh, First, I need to preface, I'm not a Trump supporter. However, I think 
in the in the context of American democracy, things are getting lost, and people are tired of the of the status quo, and then they're trying to step up to say, "Hey, we're we're tired of this do nothing Congress for the past I don't know." Born and raised in Western Pennsylvania, 1960, you see things change, and there's nothing going on in Congress that are benefiting the people. Hmm. To call it fascism, I, I, I think is it's getting out of context that people are just fed up and they're grasping onto anything with a different idea. John, thank you very much for that. I think you raise a really important point about our current political conversation. It's really one of the reasons I wanted to have the, the conversation today, Chris. So so John sounds like a lot of American voters right now. He's fed up with the way things are going. He doesn't see things getting better. Uh, he says he's not a Donald Trump supporter, but he's looking for someone who's trying to get, get some answers. Part of what you write about is that core fear of many people in any society may indeed be the start, the bubbling up of why fascism takes root, but it, the two don't go hand in hand, right? Mm-hmm. Just because you have anger and discontent within a society does not mean that we are then going to have a fascist leader who takes over. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, and, it, and I, I think that's a really important point, right? It, you know, it's not, it's not, you're not fascist just because you're fed up with a political system. I mean, it's a lot more specific than that, right? I mean, so, but I mean, if you, if, you know, there's, there's, you know, kind of a number of, you know, dramatic alternatives, I guess you can go in. Um, but if you're if you're really fed up and, that, you know, being fed up is completely understandable. You know, um, I'm fed up with a political system, too. I hope I'm not a fascist. <laughs> but, um, you know, with with on that note, really. But I mean, if you if you say you're fed up with a political system and you have and if somebody takes that sentiment with a do nothing Congress and they say, well, um, you know, we just need a strong man to kind of come in there and bust heads and ignore democratic protocol. And, you know, the Constitution, it's great, but, you know, whatever. Um, then you've got this kind of and – and if you have this, this impulse to kind of just get things done over anything else, that's when it gets a little bit scary. I mean, in, if you read kind of Mein Kampf or Mussolini's My Rise – what they consistently said is, you know, Congress and, and parliaments basically are just about kind of bickering. All people do is argue. Um, you need a leader. You need somebody just to kind of come in. And, that, and that's really um, what um, democracy gets us. It's basically just a bunch of people arguing over nothing. Um, people are desperate. Um, people are, are, you know, with, with Hitler, at least in, by the 30s and Mussolini by the 30s, it's the Depression. You need somebody to get the house in order without just worrying about all these kind of wimpy democratic but, but, but isn't that always a part? I mean, that's always a part of American politics. Um, and, and I know that American fascism is something that that is that fascinates you and something that you study. But the urge for leadership, for someone to make a decision in a messy democratic system is is something I think that Americans always crave. We always want someone who can make a tough decision. We also love someone who doesn't change their mind, who is principled on something and always does the same thing, which is very interesting because the current presidential frontrunner is someone who changes his mind all the time, as, as we said earlier, very pragmatic. One thing I want to get to, though, is you talk about the rise of the strong man because people have discontent in the way the system works. But don't you also need the scapegoat? Don't you also need somebody who is causing the problem that that is keeping you from having the life that you want? Isn't that necessary 
for the rise of actual fascism. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Right. So and, and like I was saying earlier, it's like it's the bulleted list. It's the fascist minimum. You know, s- simply um, wanting a strong man and a strong leader is not enough. I mean, certainly there's a lot of people who actually admire somebody who uh, is principled, as you say, and, and doesn't change their mind easily just at the at the whim of the latest poll. But when you combine that with a true authoritarian streak um, that does actually kind of um, denude your opponents of political power, and you combine that with a real kind of xenophobia or a real militarism, um, you know, and there's another conversation about the ways in which, you know, Trump doesn't fit the kind of historical model we could also talk about. But um, but if you do have this kind of uh, scapegoating, this militarism, as you say, combined with the authoritarianism, combined with a, num- a host of other factors, this kind of, you know, hard rejection of equality, um, you know, this hard anti-intellectualism, yeah, then you're actually some, a pro- you're at least in the in the ballpark of fascism. Uh, let's get to another phone call. Frederick is calling from Pomfret. Hello, Frederick. Go ahead. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, my point is, in, on one end, using the word fascist um, or not using the word fascist seems to be a self-defeating uh, discussion. Uh, seems, and we agree that fascism is something that's grounded in a very uh, specific uh, uh, period of history in a very specific part of the world, and therefore it is going to be pretty much impossible to replicate all the conditions uh, in contemporary American society. So on one end, we should not wait for, you know, for all these things to try to happen because we'll never be able to use the word fascist. On the other hand, if we use the word fascist and say, well, it's, let's use it a little more loosely, we have the risk of actually you know, throwing a gratuitous uh, you know, fuel on the fire and not be very credible. Instead, we should really discuss the features of the policies that are proposed by Mr. Trump and others, which is, you know, the extreme nationalism, potentially, or the closing of borders, or the, uh, you know, the, the impulse for being authoritative, et cetera, et cetera. There's, this is where we should use speech as opposed to try to attach this greater big label that doesn't have all that much meaning anymore. Frederick, that's a, that's a really great point. I thank you very much for your phone call. And, and I... The idea of the policies themselves is something that we haven't talked much about, and it is, frankly, what has gotten lost during much of this campaign as insults are hurled and epithets are used and terminology is debated. The policies themselves are really at the heart of what Frederick cares about. Yeah, and, but it, but that's also the policies are only part of it, too, in the sense that, again, we don't know what he's going to do. It's We don't know um, in power what this person would do. But also the policies, if you watch his speeches, and I've watched a number of them, it's really hard to nail down what his policies are, right, in the sense that there's a lot of kind of rambling that happens, right? There's a lot of kind of, oh, well, if you look at a full Trump speech, it's like, well, people love me. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, clamp down on this group. I'm going to build this wall. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. Um, but I do think it's – I mean, I, I, I agree with Frederick and I disagree on, on certain points too in the sense that I think the, the language and the psychology kind of behind it um, and the kind of the tropes um, that come up in someone's language um, and the emphasis is important for gauging. And, and, and again, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm hesitating from saying you know Trump is 100 percent fascist because it's still too early in the game and he hasn't organized an actual fascist party, right? Um, but nonetheless, um, 
those those words are important. You know, even words short of policy are important. Impulses are important. Um, we're getting some emails. Uh, Ariel, who is, I believe, a colleague of, of Chris's, um, says, my concern about fascism in the Trump campaign is not that uh, Trump is a fascist, not that a fascist regime might come to power in the United States, and not that U.S. fascist elements are identical to those of Germany, Italy, or other nations from decades ago. Rather, um, Ariel writes, I fear that Trump is mobilizing and emboldening, emboldening individuals and groups with troubling fascistic tendencies, such as long-established white supremacists and nationalist extremists who are prone to violence, including targeted terrorism and hate crimes. White supremacy and nationalist extremism are two things we have mentioned, but but bear perhaps a little bit more part of the, of the conversation here as we talk about the history of fascism in the United States. Yeah, and um, what Ariel brings up is that it, it is actually the train of my book. Is it? And I, when I look at kind of fascist tendencies in the United States, I tend to focus on movements, um, and particularly movements that have actually impacted the political mainstream, rather than individuals per se. And I think what's unique about Trump is, and one of the really the you know, first times that I that I can really remember, at least since Wallace, George Wallace in the late '60s, that we have somebody who brings together those traits and a major kind of front runner. Right. And we're actually having this conversation, which is pretty astounding to me. I just I never thought we would be actually having this um, conversation, you know, in, in um, 2016. But what I've identified, at least historically in in um, American life is kind of the real fascist movements, you know, is not I don't focus on the kind of the galaxy of fringe groups, um, but. You know, again, groups that have had an impact, like in the 1920s through the 60s, the Ku Klux Klan, right, is a kind of a, a bona fide kind of fascist organization. Um, I also look at, I also see the Coglinite movement of the uh, Father Coglin that's had this tremendous uh, radio following and had this Christian front in the in the uh, the late 1930s, particularly. Um, they actually impacted American policy. I see them as part of the kind of the fascist current. There was a lot of streams that were happening in the 1950s around Joe McCarthy. Again, you know, if we were looking for precedent, I would say, you know, Trump might be kind of more in the realm of of um, or, or uh, a predecessor, two predecessors you might see as uh, Trump predecessors are kind of Joe McCarthy to a point, um, but also George Wallace in the sense that. McCarthy was also, I think, in certain ways fascist-minded, but never really congealed into a real fascist movement. Um, um, George Wallace in the late 60s and his American Independent Party was widely acknowledged, even by conservatives like William F. Buckley at the time, as a a kind of a functional equivalent of American fascism. And I thought he brought together enough of the traits to kind of qualify. And, you know, like George Wallace, um, I think what's interesting is that over... Um, as, as Ariel brought up, overt kind of white nationalist, overt um, kind of neo-Nazi groups are actually drawn, you know, to Trump and Wallace. With with George Wallace in the 68 and 72 campaigns, um, actual neo-Nazis would show up in uniform at his rallies. So would um, KKK types, too. Um, and you could say he's not fascist or he's not fully, but there there does... You do have to explain it. Why, why are these people drawn to you, right? Why are they not drawn to the Green Party, right, <laughs> or something like this? I mean, so I think that that's where the kind of the caution or, or the at least the, um, the, the, the danger, I think, becomes really apparent. There are a lot of fears in America right now, and some people may have fears of people who don't look like them. There, there, there's a big conversation, though, about whether or not something like ISIS or Muslim extremism um, constitutes a type of existential threat to the American way of life, whatever the hell that is. 
And I think one of the reasons that's important is um, ISIS is, for instance, a group that probably in no way would meet any definition that you would have of a fascist organization. It is essentially leaderless. It is a movement that doesn't have any clear uh, agenda, really, other than to uh, make a caliphate across the Middle East and attack its enemies. But it is structured entirely differently, and it's very confusing to people as a, as an enemy. I, I guess I'm wondering if if there's something in in there as well that perhaps this uh, this rise in American ideas of fascism come in part from an enemy that they see as completely and utterly out of their control and misunderstood. Yeah, I mean, but although I, w- I would caution that I think there's always been kind of it, most periods of an American history in the 20th century, at least, there's been some enemy that people see as kind of out of their control and from within the United States. You know, when you go from communism to, you know, the war on terror. But that said, I mean, there's also the question, you know, is does ISIS constitute a kind of fascism? I mean, I'm not a Middle East scholar. I don't know enough about the details of ISIS other than just clips I see on the news to really address that. It's possible. I, I don't know. But. And I guess the reason I, I raise this is during the Cold War era and even up through the, the early parts, just pre-9-11, a lot of what America said it was fighting against was was communism or a type of totalitarianism that that American democracy was an antidote to, right? That we we would as Americans be able to fight against these type of rulers in 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 Russia or a Middle East dictator with just the purity of American democracy. Everyone has a vote. We we bring in all comers. We don't have of fascism here because we believe in inequality. Those were our enemies for decades and decades and decades. Our enemies seem to be different now. Mm-hmm. And and maybe I, I'm just postulating that maybe that has a little something to do with what is going on in people's minds. The enemies aren't very clear, and American democracy isn't necessarily the antidote for the things that they see as a, as a worry. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, and that, this is, a you know, obviously a broader conversation than just than just fascism. Um, but I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily see it as a uh, I guess the appeal to fascism per se here is is something endemic to the kind of you know enemies that the United States faces abroad. Right. And, and ISIS is, is horrible. Right. I mean, there's there's no I mean, I think we all agree on that. Um, you know, but I, I think one of the things that I see is more kind of a seed of something like that keeps the at least the possibility of an American fascism alive really is the prof- the economic system we have that produces profound um, economic anxiety. We have um, profound income inequality. I mean, there is some actual there was some um, data that suggests that actually the basis of support um, where where Trump is, the counties where and regions where Trump is most um, strong is areas where you have actually a declining mortality mortality rate amongst kind of um, working class whites in the United States, right? So I mean, there's there's real uh, visceral uh, problems that people are dealing with that, and and there's also the 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 flames of race that have been kind of kept alive. Well, and, and right? that's what D- David from Woodbury, and I can't get to your phone call right now, but he wants to raise this, and we have mentioned this, but when Donald Trump uh, Trump talks about. Um, banning Muslims from the country, that is directly related to the fears that we were talking about, this this unknown, and we're able to say, well, it's people who practice a certain religion, they maybe look a certain way, and, and those fears have specifically to do with race, and, and that's a part of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so... I mean, and it's also there is there has been some commentary too, and this is from the Guardian in the UK that I thought was a really brilliant f- point too. It's 
the the enemy that's his maybe not the enemy but the 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 thing that's more difficult to name really is the economic structure which is a lot more kind of diffuse there we, you know manufacturing has fled the united states in a kind of major way you have deindustrialization you have most profits being made from the finance sector which are big in connecticut that kind of fire the fire insurance real estate um, you have amazing accumulations of wealth, but the kind of the face of this wealth, um, this kind of the face of kind of um, finance is not really kind of clear. And within within that, there, it's very more it's difficult to kind of name um, the, you know, domestic issues as well in that front. We're talking today with uh, author Christopher Viles, who's director of American Studies and associate professor of English at UConn. His book is Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. As we go out of the segment, um, as we go out of the segment, we're going to listen to a little bit of Woody Guthrie, whose guitar famously had the message, this machine kills fascists. Coming up next, we'll talk about some modern-day pop culture and how fascism is portrayed in some blockbuster superhero movies this year. We'll continue this conversation where we live right after this. Well, I'm gonna tell you fascists, you may be surprised. People in this world are getting organized. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, the Yukon Foundation is a powerful fundraiser for the state's flagship university. But by state law, it's also exempt from the kind of freedom of information laws that allow citizens to explore other governmental agencies. This has become a point of contention for some lawmakers who are looking for more transparency. We're going to talk about university foundations, fundraising, and FOI on the next Where We Live. Hope you can join us. We've been talking today with Christopher Viles, who's a UConn professor. He's also the author of Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. Yesterday, the Colin McEnroe Show spent an hour talking about a cultural figure who is back on the big screen this weekend, Batman. One of the debates over the bat and Bruce Wayne actually has to do with fascism. Our next guest sees the descent of America into fascism in not only the new Batman versus Superman movie, but in the summer's new Captain America film. Charlie Jane Anders is editor of the website io9 and the author of All the Birds in the Sky. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. First of all, so uh, tell us a bit about your argument. How do you see fascism in some of these big superhero movies that are hitting our screen this year? Well, I mean, basically what I was doing is, in a sense, just kind of stating the obvious, which is that uh, there are certain fascist themes and images in a lot of these stories. Uh, and I feel like both the Batman Superman movie and the, the Captain America movie are clearly zeroing in on some of those um, from in, in the way that they grapple with the, the questions of, of individual power and, and individualism and uh, hint at sort of the... the uh, decline of society and the, the uh, uh, sort of paranoia of uh, social unraveling. Um, you know, one of the, particularly Batman is a figure who frequently seems to believe that society is under threat and, you know, from criminals and that uh, we are kind of losing control over society and, uh, you know, dresses up in a, in a fancy high-tech costume in order to get things back under control. And in Batman versus Superman, the central conflict is that uh, Batman is actually kind of a xenophobic figure who fears that Superman, who is an alien, uh, will destroy America and will destroy our civilization and uh, that we need to, to take violent measures to, to keep the, this alien threat under control. But, 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 actually, but yeah, but, but, fairly but, sort of 
blatant theme in the movie. Well, well but here, here's one thing that, that's interesting, though, and, and as much as I can follow along some of those themes, one of the things that, that Batman traditionally never has done is led a group of Batmen who, who follow him. I mean, Batman is the Lone Ranger, right? He works by himself. He works in, in the dead of night, and he's he, he may have these tendencies, but he's not gathering an army to try to force out the alien, right? That's very true, and that's that's uh, that's a point that I talk about in my article. Is that Batman is the ultimate individualist, and in fact, um, you know, for all his, he's sort of a symbol of of American might. Um, I think superheroes in general often function as symbols of American might, but in terms of the actual story, he is not uh, a fascist leader. And in fact, one of the I've now seen the film, and one of the themes in the film that comes up again and again is that Superman is afraid. Uh, sorry, Batman is afraid that Superman will become a fascist leader and that, you know, he will end up leading an army of super uh, men or, or Superman followers. Uh, and there's actually a lot of talk in the movie about how people throughout history have followed uh, those with great power and, you know, that how people have a tendency to follow blindly and, and Batman is concerned about this. But at the same time, Batman spouts a lot of paranoid rhetoric of the stories that you often hear in defense of really harsh authoritarian uh, regimes, um, well, well, I, I, the idea that you know, if if there's even a one percent chance that Superman is our enemy, we have to assume that it's an absolute. Mm. Uh, as as you mentioned that before, we would say that Spider-Man famously says, "With great power comes great responsibility." Um, but uh, now, what about Captain America? What could be more wholesome and all-American than Captain America? What, what do you see in in this film? Well, again, I mean, the Captain America movie is based on a story from the comics from about 10 years ago, and it's loosely based on it, I should hasten to add. It's not closely based on it, but it's it's based on a story from the comics from 10 years ago in which basically Captain America is, is once again, his individualism is being questioned by some of the other superheroes, chiefly uh, Iron Man, and they want to put Captain America under control. And um, the, the argument is over kind of whether Captain America has too much power uh, without enough accountability, but their answer to that is to to put everybody into kind of uh, super gulags or or super you know Guantanamo bays uh, and create kind of hellish prisons to put uh, superheroes into if they don't conform. And it's it's very much a vision. It, it's I mean the original comic story from 2005 is is very much a response to 9/11 and the war on terror, and it's it's all about um, you know our uh, the the, the fear that uh, the war on terror would go too far and that we would start uh, say, uh, um, uh, scapegoating people and, and, and putting people into to cells and, well, and so on and so forth. I, I want to turn to Christopher Viles a, a little bit about this because, you know, the, this, this notion that uh, America looks to this great leader in the sky, someone who has enormous power, whether uh, a, a regular man like Batman or someone imbued with some sort of superpowers. Is this part, Christopher, in your mind of, of the idea of fascism? It can be, right? It, it, can, be, it can be a component de- part, depending on what it's connected to. Um, but, you know, and, but I agree with, with Charlie that, that, that this kind of there is an anti-fascist theme that runs through some of this kind of superhero literature, right? Or the superhero, these graphic novels. And I'm more familiar with some of the historical ones. But, you know, particularly 
Um, you know, there there were some things that you know more recent, some recent more recent gra- graphic novels like you know v, v for Vendetta, and there was a 2012 graphic novel called Red Skull Incarnate that was kind of spun off of the Captain America series, which also which really kind of ties into the anti-fascist tradition in in really interesting ways and in really compelling ways. But you know, but I think that 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 um. That series actually has the the one of the darker um, sides of the kind of the superhero comics is that you know Frank Miller I think has some kind of scary tendencies the the Dark Knight Return kind of thing where you it's not just about a Superman but it's about Superman just kind of instilling law and order when you know the the powers that be have broken down this kind of um, dirty hairy defense of vigilantism I don't I don't. You know, does it rise to the level of fascism? I don't know, but it's 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 not healthy. <laughs> of course, it, you know, post-1945, Rod Serling used his television show The Twilight Zone to address some political concerns. Uh, here's a little bit of Rod Serling during the closing monologue of a famous episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill, and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own. And that's the great Rod Serling. And and at the time, again, and we just have a minute or so left, Chris, but um, the American boogeyman was communism, and here is a reaction uh, by Rod Serling to fascism in, I, I'm assuming, McCarthyism at the time. Absolutely, yeah. And, and um, Serling was a World War II veteran who was also a Jewish-American, and he was haunted throughout his whole work uh, of, of fascism in the United States. And he saw in the extreme reactions to communism um, and a particular kinds of reactions to communism as um, the the would be the face of fascism in the United States, recalling, of course, that you know you know Hitler and Mussolini were um, what's often forgotten about them is not only how they were xenophobic, but how fiercely anti-communist they were, and how that was absolutely central to their identity. So I think he was seeing e- echoes of McCarthyite America throughout um, the Twilight Zone and throughout some of his um, you know teleplays before that, and some of his work after that as well. Christopher Vile's book is Haunted by Hitler, Liberals, the Left, and the Fight Against Fascism in the United States. Thanks so much for joining us for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks also to Charlie Jane Anders, editor of the website io9 and the author of All the Birds in the Sky. We've tweeted out links to Charlie's article about superheroes and fascism. If you want to continue this conversation, go to wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us at where we live on Facebook and Twitter. Our program today produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. Katie Tolarski is the executive producer of Where We Live. Thanks to Ross Levin and Stephanie Reef, our interns. I'm John Dankowski. This is Where We Live. 